Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we're going to talk a little more about stories. There's just so much to think about when it comes to stories. And the story about the bar fight and the contemplation that went with it, I think, brings up some issues that deserve more reflection. We could put the core issue of today's contemplation something like this. Can we think of all the stories we tell ourselves and others? Can we think of all the stories we hear? Can we think of all the stories we are encouraged to tell? Encouraged by coaches, marketing mavens, self-help gurus, the mass media, politicians, psychologists, and others. Can we think of all those stories and ask ourselves, to what extent do these stories benefit the pattern of insanity of the dominant culture? That's a powerful question, even though it might seem simple. The stories that I'm telling myself, the stories that I'm telling others, the stories that people are telling me, the stories I am being encouraged to tell, in what ways do those stories benefit structures of power and domination, both within my soul and outside of me in the larger culture? If we look carefully, if we reflect sensitively, on the stories we hear, the stories we tell, the stories people encourage us to tell, even if they encourage us to tell really nice stories, can we nevertheless find anything in those stories that benefits the structures of power? One thing we might consider is how our typical ways of telling stories almost inevitably perpetuate male privilege, white privilege, and human privilege. And that means our stories and our actions based on those stories will perpetuate inequality, injustice, and ecological degradation. Even if we don't have that intention, even if our stories seem to have nothing to do with privilege or ecology, they might still perpetuate delusions and suffering for ourselves and others. And it could be difficult to perceive at first. Now we can get at this from various angles, but before we even begin, we need to acknowledge that this kind of discussion can provoke people. We can get very reactive, and certain people in particular can get very reactive around any mention of male privilege, white privilege, and human privilege. Strangely enough, some of the people who might see the need to speak of one form of privilege can get nervous about the others. Since conquest consciousness has so many of us, including women and people of color, it has so many of us complicit in the human privilege that destroys the conditions of life that all of us depend on. So even if we don't, so to speak, believe in human privilege, we still participate in it. The same way as we might not have a prejudice against a certain group, but still could participate in their oppression. Sometimes unwittingly, sometimes because we don't want to look, whatever it might be. 
Now, the human privilege, I think, might be particularly important at this moment because confronting that broader form, that's the broadest form of privilege, might help bring us all together. Because again, we're all participating in it, even people who really don't want to. People, people of color, indigenous people are often seduced into this pattern of insanity and then unwillingly participate in human privilege, even if they explicitly don't want to. And so acknowledging that broadest form of privilege could help us to come together and find ways to overcome it. And then that in turn might help us to become more aware of and take responsibility for white privilege and male privilege because these are all interwoven. And we acknowledged before that our stories matter. In the introductions to at least two of his books, the writer Kent Nurburn tells us of an Ojibwe elder who counseled him to always teach by stories because stories lodge deep in the heart. Stories lodge deep in the heart. If our stories don't also arise from the heart, from the true heart of wisdom, love, and beauty, then what lodges in our heart will be ignorance. To help shake us free of that ignorance, maybe we could consider the way Socrates tried to get at these issues. It might bring medicine to the soul to notice his path of love, and to begin to understand and eventually understand why Gandhi and Martin King found so much inspiration in Socrates. Socrates concerned himself with love and justice, and he saw justice as intimately related to righteousness. And I would suggest righteousness in a sort of religious sense, because Socrates was a a very spiritual man, really a, a religious man. We can say that Socrates thought we could not have true success without realizing wisdom, love, beauty, and sacredness. Without these, we can't have justice, we can't have a thriving culture, and we can't ever have true success. We may suffer a delusion in which we see ourselves and our culture as successful, But such a delusion inevitably leads to suffering, and eventually the culture will collapse. So Socrates went around to successful people, conventionally successful people in his culture, and he ignored their stories about themselves. He saw how these successful people gave the impression that they deserved their success. They told stories about their success and about themselves that gave this impression that they knew what they were doing. They were successful because of their understanding. Now, can we sense how those things go together? If I don't really know what I'm doing, if I can't really explain how I got to where I am, tell a story about how I got to where I am, then do I really deserve my supposed success? 
That's the key question. Now we're going to come back. I'm going to just put that as a seed to germinate. And we will return to the way Socrates approached these issues. But it might help first to consider a relatively neutral set of examples of how these questions work. These are examples supported by the cool eye of the scientific method. You know, it gives us a little sense of distance to think about facts and figures in a realm that maybe a lot of us are not directly related to. Now, what I have in mind is the book that Daniel Kahneman wrote called Thinking Fast and Slow. Now, Kahneman covers a lot of experiments and studies in that book on the ways human thinking can go wrong. And one delightful set of examples he gives comes from finance. Finance is a major part of our economy, and it exemplifies the way we might tell stories to cover over our ignorance. And we should keep in mind that these stories appear to come from experience. In other words, they seem to be true stories. And this illustrates the difference between our experience of ignorance versus our experience of wisdom. The movie The Matrix depicts this difference in the same basic spirit that Socrates depicted it through Plato over 2,500 years ago. I think it's widely known now that The Matrix was based on Plato in an important way. Of course, the, the, that core metaphor we find in many spiritual traditions. Our ignorance today is the same ignorance Socrates saw in his culture. That's an important thing to keep in mind. We are living in the matrix, but we call it reality, not a simulation, not a delusion. Now let's consider these examples. Kahneman tells us about the work of a finance professor named Terry O'Dean. O'Dean studied the trading records of a whopping 10,000 brokerage accounts over a seven-year period. Now, that amounted to almost 163,000 stock market trades. He was able to look at every single instance in which an investor sold stocks in one company and then bought stocks in another. Now, think about the logic there. If we were to sell one stock and then buy another, unless we're crazy, we would do that because we thought the one we sold will not do as well as the one we bought. Basic logic there. I'm selling this one, then I turn around and buy the other one because I think the one I'm buying will perform better than the one I'm selling. However, over this massive set of data, Odin discovered that the stock traders actually did the opposite. The stocks that they sold did better than the ones they bought. So they sold something more valuable than what they bought. They sold a luxury car and bought a jalopy again and again and again. Over tens of thousands of trades year after year. Now Kahneman rightly reminds us that this is a statistical average. So that means that a few people did much better than others. And some people actually did worse and they, they lost a lot. But on average, the average investor should have done nothing at all. Nothing. 
they would have made more money and been better able to justify their paycheck by doing nothing. Now, in a, the dominant culture where we are all addicted to doing, it's pretty hard to do nothing. Moreover, how would someone justify their high-paying finance job by saying that they do almost nothing and that they don't have much special knowledge about how markets work, about when to buy and when to sell? So instead, we develop all sorts of useless stories and ideas about ourselves and the stock market. We might work incredibly hard and have the actual experience of working hard, we would have the sense that our stories about our efforts and our understanding are true. And yet a more careful analysis re reveals that we do nothing more than perpetuate the deluded stories of our culture. And those stories include things like individualism, success, doing, of course, and a massive stock market that can make people incredibly rich even while the rest of the economy is in the toilet. Those stories cover over the truth of interdependence, the truth that we don't need to function as competitive, atomized individuals, the truth about our need for wisdom, compassion, and beauty. And those stories cover over the many lies of what we call a capitalist economy and a democratic society including our refusal to fully acknowledge the ways we exploit human beings and the larger community of life. In his book, Kahneman tells us about another study that Odin and his colleague Brad Barber did. And that study showed how people socialized as men act on their essentially useless ideas and stories more often than people socialized as women. In other words, we get these ideas, we get these stories. Who's going to take action? Who's going to be more prone to the delusions of doing when they instead should do less? In fact, maybe should do nothing. It turns out people socialized as men. And what that means is that all things equal, people socialized as women will likely do better at finance and should probably get paid more than people socialized as men. And they should probably manage and mentor men who want to work in finance. But of course, we don't live in an equal society, and we use our stories to keep it that way. Perhaps as an aspect of feminine wisdom, archetypally speaking, we might find a relative disinterest in and even condemnation of what we usually refer to as finance. In other words, I'm suggesting Sophia really doesn't have an interest in markets, doesn't have an interest in Wall Street, and probably finds it extremely disappointing that we invest so much energy into it and reward so much material wealth for what's essentially a crapshoot. Now, Kahneman points out that investment funds are managed by people who work very hard and who see themselves as experienced and knowledgeable. They might be very well educated, they might have gone to very good schools, they might have advanced degrees. These people have a vested interest in doing the best possible job for their clients. It's the basic idea of capitalism at work, and without the concepts of debt and then finance, 
we don't have an economy. We might have a market, but we don't have an economy unless we have debt and finance. So the people working in finance not only have a vested interest in doing well, but they have a vested interest in appearing highly skilled and knowledgeable. That's part of the whole ideology of capitalism, especially when it comes to stock markets. And yet evidence from more than 50 years of research into finance leaves no serious room for doubt that most of the activity on Wall Street amounts to rolling dice and not anything skillful that we should reward with high wages or prestige, maybe not anything we should even condone, given the time and energy it drains from people who could put their intelligence to work in better ways, ways that would serve the world and help us all. The vast majority of what happens in finance does nothing to further the conditions of life. And a lot of it is simply unethical, not only from a moral point of view, but from a broader philosophical point of view regarding the meaning of life and regarding the ecological realities we actually depend on. If we can make money just by moving money around, our wages have no connection to ecological or spiritual realities. And we end up having to tell some kind of deluded story about why our activities should matter. But, again, keep in mind, the subjective experience of people working in finance reinforces their stories. They can confidently tell us about how they make skilled, calculated, highly informed decisions in a context of uncertainty and periodic volatility. In other words, the stock market. But these supposedly clever decisions work no better than sheer guessing or maybe a little common sense interspersed with lots of doing nothing at all. Best revelation about finance. Kahneman tells a story. And it's the kind of story that we can appreciate because of how it unmasks the delusions of the typical stories we tell about ourselves and our culture. Notice that this is a tricky situation. The power of stories can liberate us, but we have to take so much care in how we handle them, at least in this context, maybe in all contexts. Kahneman tells us that he had a, a unique opportunity, a rare opportunity, to get up close and personal with the delusion of financial skill. Now, how did it happen? He received an invitation to speak to a group of investment advisors from a firm that catered to high net worth clients. Now, we can certainly imagine that a wealthy person wants very much to hear that their financial advisors know exactly what they are doing and that they can offer some evidence of being able to outperform their competition. Kahneman asked the firm for data in order to prepare a presentation for them. Now, if you don't know who Daniel Kahneman is, you might not know why they would care or why should we be listening to him, you know, in the first place. But Kahneman received a Nobel Prize in economics for work he did in collaboration with his colleague, Amos Tversky. And the firm would have seen Kahneman as an authority on economic matters. 
So Kahneman got data on the performance of each advisor in the firm for a period of eight years, and he had one question. Is there any evidence of skill here in this eight-year span of data? A skilled investor would have some degree of consistency from year to year. Some degree of consistency. Kahneman found zero. Zero evidence for skill. The performance of the firm's advisors looked exactly like a game of dice. But that's not how the advisors experienced their work. Their story goes something like this. I work at a prestigious firm serving high net worth clients because I am a skilled professional doing serious and important work and that's why I get paid so well. On the evening before Kahneman's presentation, he went out to dinner with some of the firm's top executives. These were the people who assigned bonuses to the financial advisors whose performance Kahneman had analyzed, and they assigned those bonuses based on performance. In other words, they believed that a more skilled and successful finance professional should get paid a higher bonus. You're getting paid on the basis of skill, on the basis of performance. Now, when Kahneman asked them to guess the correlation of performance, in other words, to guess how much skill actually showed up in the numbers, they had first said, well, I'm sure performance probably fluctuates a bit. But they had no clue that there was absolutely no indication of skill, none. And that they, along with most of Wall Street, were rewarding sheer luck as if it were skill. Best of all, when Kahneman revealed this, the executives gave almost no reaction. They just carried on with dinner as if Kahneman had merely reported some mundane fact about the weather. The same lack of responsiveness came in the presentation the following day. Why? Why, why this lack of response? Because in their own story, and thus in their experience of themselves. The financial advisors identified themselves as well-educated, skilled, competent, intelligent, hard-working. And the data didn't fit that story, and they didn't want to put their identity at risk. Couldn't do that. The cherry on the cake came when one of the executives with whom Kahneman had shared dinner drove him to the airport. The executive said to Kahneman, I have done very well for the firm, and no one can take that away from me. Kahneman writes that he smiled and said nothing, but he thought to himself, Well, I took it away from you this morning. If your success was due mostly to chance, how much credit are you entitled to take for it? Now, this discussion of finance at first appears as a relatively neutral example to help us get in touch with a highly charged issue. 
We sometimes get so reactive around highly charged issues that we can't even begin to approach them with care and sensitivity. Our perception shuts down and our suffering goes into an activated state. If we don't work in finance, we can look at these findings with a calm mind, a calm heart, a calm body and world. And we can sense how a person in finance could become heavily invested in a story, a story that feels real. And we can see how that story solidifies their sense of self, their identity, along with the culture's sense of itself. It's a shocking revelation that requires the semblance of compassion, some bit, some modicum of compassion, some modicum of wisdom, love, and grace to receive. Because I think we can readily sense how the extreme wealth of the stock market goes altogether with inequality, injustice, and ecological breakdown. That's not hard to see. It doesn't take much thought. And it's not hard to see how unjust it is that any one of us in dire need of material stability could do every bit as well as the average investor who might get paid extremely good wages for a lot of useless effort. What do we even do with that insight? That there are millions of people struggling and those millions of people could do every bit as well as an average stock market investor. Because the average stock market investor should be doing nothing if they wanted to earn their wages. What do we do when we also realize that a police officer can genuinely claim to be working hard, doing their job, thinking carefully, and trying to uphold justice? And all the while, they are acting out a story of oppression and inequality that remains invisible to them. It takes compassion to care for these kinds of insights because our example of finance really gets to the foundation of the dominant culture, which has to do with things like money, property, materialism, and conquest. We need compassion to face the whole history of conquest and what it has done to the world, to our fellow human beings who are our kin, and to all our other kin too, the non-human kin. We also have to face what it has done to the people of the conquest cultures. For the whole history of conquest is a history of our own degradation, those of us who come from those lineages. We need compassion to hear the stories we most need to hear right now. And compassion is a practice, not something we can take for granted. It's not the same as empathy, and ordinarily when we hear uncomfortable things, we go into empathic distress. If we could learn compassion, if we could learn the practice, we could carry our calm mind and heart, carry our openness, to some of the other stories we hear in our culture that also participate in this kind of craziness. We could begin to sense how it might be possible, at least possible, 
that a person could tell a convincing story about their success, about their decisions, about their triumphs and their skill without much awareness that their success had a lot to do with luck and maybe with being socialized as male, as white, and as human. They might have no idea how much their supposed success is rooted in ignorance rather than wisdom, love, and beauty. Socrates tried to get at this very issue by means of compassionate dialogue. He sought wisdom and he followed a path of love, dignity, grace. We planted a seed about Socrates earlier and we said we we're going to let it germinate a bit and so let's return to it in light of what we've considered so far. Socrates questioned the business leaders, political leaders, thought leaders, artists, and also the self-help and coaching gurus of his day who promised success to their clients the same way that people today promise success to theirs. And he found again and again and again that these people lacked genuine wisdom, that at the best they might be able to profess some partially correct opinions about their own narrow domain, but that these partially correct opinions were fragmented and incoherent. And in many cases, they just revealed that they didn't know much at all. They were unable to really sustain a compassionate dialogue and to reveal any genuine wisdom. They might sound good on the surface, and their experience and their conviction might have led any one of us to trust them and believe them, just as we do today, with coaches, thought leaders, politicians, and so on. But Socrates found these people dangerous because they did not live their life on the basis of righteousness, on the basis of wisdom, on the basis of love, beauty, dignity, justice. And therefore, he saw how they put the whole culture at risk just as they risked their own souls and the souls of their children by telling the stories they were telling, the stories of their success and their supposed knowledge and skill and so on with no real wisdom as the foundation for that success. Again, that lack of wisdom only appeared in dialogue with Socrates and not usually in any other place or any other conversation. That's why Socrates got killed. He had enough insight and enough self-cultivation, enough cultivation of wisdom, love, beauty, a kind of fierce but calm compassion that he could reveal their ignorance. He would listen carefully and then the ignorance would just come out by itself. Whereas in ordinary conversations, it just might sound like, well, I'm right and you're wrong, or we have a disagreement. Now, Socrates kept put pressing, kept pressing. And if you were alive today, you might get killed too. Because many of the most powerful people in our culture took advantage of various forms of privilege and or they had a series of lucky breaks in their life and or they might also have had some fragmented, partially correct opinions, but they could celebrate it as visionary 
and is earning their wealth with intelligence and boldness and hard work and courage. The suggestion that this is so, that there's a deeper truth, that, that their success is ultimately based on ignorance and that the culture has an ignorant notion of success, that suggestion can strike those very people, the most powerful in the culture, as offensive. Now that might be because in some cases, maybe in many cases, they did put in a good deal of effort, just like the stockbrokers. They might work very long days, put in a lot of hours, think very hard. Maybe they suffered a lot on their way to success. But lots of people work hard and suffer greatly, and they still can't get free from poverty, from addiction, from violence, from illness. No person of color can get free from structural racism even if they become relatively successful. No indigenous person can simply snap their fingers and get the government to respect treaties and respect their way of life and their basic dignity. Many of the stories, not all, but many of the stories of the dominant culture tend to cover over all of that and more because the stories focus on personal triumphs without bringing out any deeper truths about the structural ignorance of the culture and without putting us in attunement with the important truths that we find in the wisdom and traditions, the philosophical and spiritual traditions of the world. And the solution is not simply telling better stories. It has to do with shifting the culture, the consciousness, shifting it at the base. That's what Socrates wanted to do. And he saw that a lot of the stories in his culture, even the art, the high art of his culture that we still revere, he saw that a lot of those stories didn't really facilitate that kind of transformation, didn't really facilitate an entrance into wisdom, love, and beauty. Now, the same holds true for us. So many of the stories of our culture keep the concept of transformation limited. This is not to say that the transformations people experience and share don't have important positive aspects to them and that some important suffering doesn't get alleviated as these stories unfold and then get told to us. But it is to suggest that many of the stories we tell in this culture about ourselves and about the culture itself function to keep in place certain structures of power. Now we can maybe make this clear from a broader view if we can recognize the way conquest consciousness and the exploitation that comes with it, that arrives first, historically speaking. And then stories of political hierarchy come later. The concept of race comes after the activities of conquest that we then seek to preserve through stories about supposed racial differences and racial superiority. And let's keep in mind that race goes together with human privilege. Race is about defining who is accepted as fully human and who is claimed to be more like the savage natural world that we're supposedly allowed to exploit as we fancy, according to the stories that we're telling. The same basic structure holds true in the way we pursue success. We already begin 
with an incoherent and biased notion of success in this culture. But we refer to it only as success. We don't refer to the biases. We don't recognize it as a biased concept. Now, we might claim that we have our own unique individual understanding of success, but that often amounts to a denial of our context, which itself relies on stories about individualism, materialism, and so on. It is a fragmented, fragmenting, and incoherent view of life. That's the context. And it's not possible to simply think ourselves out of it or certainly not possible to wish ourselves out of it, which seems to be the case with a lot of the conversations about the culture that are not deeply critical enough. So again, we, we find ourselves with various kinds of privilege, including human privilege, which so many of us are benefiting from, even if we fundamentally disagree with it. It's, it's the form of privilege that the entire apparatus, the global apparatus is operating on we, of course, experience various kinds of luck. And in a system predicated on conquest and inequality, we find a need to justify why we are deserving of what we have. And it's a core issue in what we call civilized society. It's one of the core issues. And to return to Socrates again, he lived in an early version of civilization. And that version followed the pattern that we still basically have today. And Socrates realized that when people lack rootedness in wisdom, love, and beauty, in sacredness and serenity, the culture will perpetuate incoherence and injustice and will eventually collapse. And he was brave enough and wise enough to reveal the ignorance and the incoherence of people applauded as successful as wise, as intelligent, as visionary, as capable leaders, as artists, as teachers. That's why Gandhi and Martin King held Socrates up as inspiration. They too sought to confront the very same problem. The Athenian Empire collapsed. The Roman Empire collapsed. The city-states of the Renaissance collapsed. Gandhi labored under the yoke of the British Empire, which would collapse from the same incoherence Socrates saw in ancient Athens. Dr. King lived in the midst of American Empire and its incoherence, which also seems headed for collapse, unless we can begin to heal the culture. The power of good stories, spiritual, philosophical, mythopoetic stories, could facilitate that healing. But too many of our stories currently get in the way of our healing rather than facilitating it. What we call America, America has its stories. Stories of American exceptionalism, stories of American innocence, America has its stories of individualism, democracy, equality, rags to riches, success, and all the rest. As individuals, our stories get shaped by those larger cultural narratives. And we are, therefore, by default, invested in the culture's stories as well as in our own, even when they don't serve us. 
And that means that we in the dominant culture killed Martin Luther King for the same reason the Athenians killed Socrates. He presented a threat to our stories. And here's a crucial point, one that takes a lot of compassion to receive. No matter how progressive we might think ourselves, if there is any part of the cultural narrative we seem to benefit from, or any part of the cultural narrative we cling to, even if we don't really benefit from it, then wisdom, love, and beauty present as much of a threat to us as they did to the people who killed Socrates and King. Somewhere in our psyche, maybe lurking in the shadows, but somewhere in there we may find a part of ourselves that prefers our story and the culture's story to the love and liberation we might discover and create if we could only let go and enter that space between stories that we talked about in the other contemplation. To the extent that King walked the path of both Socrates and Christ, he did not seek to offer us new stories we should cling to, but rather offered us stories that could get us out of our cave of delusions, out of our cave of fear, and into spaciousness, the space between stories, the vast spaciousness of wisdom, love, and beauty. He offered us stories of love and liberation. And love and liberation means freedom from all our stories. The story of my first bar fight is, from a certain perspective, just another story about white privilege, male privilege, and human privilege. I think maybe it takes some spaciousness and compassion to tell those aspects of the story and really receive them, and we've only scratched the surface here. Though I came from people who suffered from painful and harmful ethnic biases, I am not a black man or an indigenous man, and my people got pretty well assimilated into whiteness, into conquest consciousness. Though I had incoherent relations with male figures of my childhood, so much so that I have no interest in the white, hyper-masculine ideals portrayed in the dominant culture. Though I value much in the traditions of the dominant culture, and Socrates and Plato are my ancestors, my lineage, I spend far more time trying to learn from indigenous and non-Western traditions. I typically prefer the company of those socialized as female to those socialized as male. And I find so many of the stories of the dominant culture tiresome and rather dangerous. I often feel like an outsider in my own culture. It seems that a lot of people who might have lineage in the dominant culture feel like outsiders in it. And they sense rather acutely how it has been so degraded as to be almost vacuous, how it has emptied itself out so much of what matters to our souls. Nevertheless, even though all those things are true, I benefit from having been socialized as a white male. And those benefits largely remain invisible without careful reflection, scrutiny, and analysis. Moreover, those benefits are relative. 
It's important. With those benefits comes a great deal of harm to myself and others. We need to hear that part of the story too. And we need to hear about how male privilege and white privilege goes together with human privilege. Given the predominance of white people in the poor area where I got into that first bar fight, I'm pretty sensitive to the most overt injustice of that place, which I would suggest has to do with human privilege and how the consequences of the totally incoherent orientation of human privilege get disproportionately saddled onto the poor, onto women, and then onto people of color, of course. But the bar fight happened not too far from one of the most polluting coal-fired power plants in the whole of the United States. And if you saw a picture of where my grandfather lived, where I lived for the first few years of my life, you would not believe somebody could be allowed to live that close to a coal-fired power plant. This was not an area that needed any institutionalized restriction of access as far as people of color go, because no one in their right mind would want to live there. Poverty and pollution, which often go together, made it highly undesirable. That power plant was right on the shore of a river that I can only imagine any sane culture, like the indigenous people who lived there long ago, would have held as sacred. And white privilege does enter there because any indigenous people of that area would have felt like they lived in a sacred and powerful place before the arrival of conquest consciousness. But I enjoyed no sacred relationship with that river or with the glorious mountains of that region. That fact seems totally bound up with the trauma and tragedy so many of us share, black and white, indigenous and colonizer, rich and poor. We in the dominant culture got cut off from our own soul by conquest consciousness, by our own soul and the soul of the world, the landscape of the soul inwardly and outwardly. That consciousness damaged the souls of people all over the world as it damaged the landscapes of the world. We all need to heal that fundamental wound the wound that gives rise to racism and race, to hierarchies of gender, inequalities of wealth, injustices of all kinds. The fundamental wound is conquest and exploitation rooted in ignorance, which we could call the ignorance of duality, the basic ignorance. And we're suggesting that healing all these wounds including the most fundamental one, has to do in some significant way with giving up telling the stories that serve the pattern of insanity, however indirectly. Somehow we can find our way into the space between stories and instead of telling more stories. It's not to say we don't want to tell more stories too, but just kind of letting go of this energy, this inertia of storytelling that's been co-opted by the forces of the economy by the pattern of insanity itself. And if we're going to tell stories, we could start to let the stories be told through us, as us, letting the world speak the stories through us, 
letting the mystery speak through the stories, through us, letting wisdom, love, and beauty have their say rather than trying to tell our story. Any great poet or storyteller knows that the best poetry, the, the finest story, falls into their lap as if a shooting star fell out of the sky, as if a goddess granted a boon, a blessing. That's how powerful stories come. They come out of the world, out of the sacred powers and inconceivable causes that make all things happen. They are a power, and they can transfer power to us. Now, it's not to say there isn't a lot of hard work sometimes in receiving a story uh, in the right way, making sure we heard, making sure we serve every inspiration that comes through. That can take a lot of passion and dedication, a spiritual practice of life, really. But for the most part, the best stuff happens in such a way that we say, well, who did that? Well, I didn't do it. And that's true. Now, one problem is that our suffering can seem like that at first. Our suffering can seem like, hey, I, I didn't do that. Our suffering can almost look like our inspiration when we have our life a little bit crooked because we don't see the ways we do make our suffering. We don't see the ways that the karma of the past shapes the present so thoroughly that we almost have the experience that something is happening to us. We don't always sense that something is happening through us because delusion feels like life is happening to me. And wisdom, love, and beauty, that feels like something happening through us and as us, something magical, something opening. It's not easy, and there's no simple black and white here. We have to develop discernment. But part of the discernment can simply be to ask ourselves, to pause first and ask, to what degree does the story I tell here, or the story I am tempted to tell, or the story that someone's enticing me to listen to, to what degree would this story serve the pattern of insanity? Is there any way in which it would serve the pattern of insanity? And is there any way in which a different story might dispel the pattern of insanity? Those questions can make for a pretty good place to start, given the level of insanity in our culture. But then we have to be careful, too, because we could get pulled into all sorts of rationalizations. You know, thinking that we're dispelling the pattern of insanity and still feeding into it. For instance, look at the stories about the coronavirus. Seemingly progressive thinkers who want to dispel the pattern of insanity have stories about the coronavirus that don't seem to match up with a sensible analysis of the situation. Or, or even something that's reasonably cautious. Look at how not wearing a mask has been turned into a story of exercising our freedom. Look at how not believing that the coronavirus is a real virus, that it's dangerous to people, that it's killing people, that it's more dangerous than the average flu to a very significant number of people. 
Look at how believing that story, that it's somehow a hoax, seems like an act of rebellion and critical thinking. So we'll tell stories about the coronavirus that have the veneer of liberating us. And yet they seem to perpetuate the pattern of insanity. Now, wisdom does throw us back on ourselves. Sophia says, don't come to me for some simple answer. You have to search your soul and not satisfy yourself with simple answers. She often seems to be fierce. It's not really throwing us back on ourselves so that we have some self-centered agency, but throwing us back on ourselves so that we can hear, so that we can listen, so that we can think with a larger ecology of mind. And we can sense how these acts of supposed rebellion ended up somehow feeding the pattern of insanity. In part, we can see that because overall, Trump's poll numbers remained surprisingly stable during the pandemic. And as an added note, maybe we should emphasize again and again and again the way the stories we might tell, the stories we are tempted to tell, feed into the larger political, social, economic, and ecological challenges we face. Because when we look at all those challenges together, especially the ecological ones, of course, the coronavirus is something that we could predict. It fits into what happens when we tell stories and live lives that degrade ecologies. We're emphasizing again then that white privilege, male privilege, and human privilege go all together. And our stories, maybe especially stories about things like abundance and a lot of other things that come out of the self-help catastrophe, those stories seem like thinking for ourselves and taking control of our lives, but they end up feeding into the pattern of insanity and perpetuating inequality, injustice, ecological degradation, and so on. Whether we become conscious of it or not, we hold a basic story in the dominant culture that capitalism is the end of history, that it's the best way, the best economy, it's the best possible system we could have. Now, a lot of people are rejecting that, but there's still a, a strong current of this story that we all get infected with. That somehow capitalism is pulling people out of poverty. It's giving us all opportunity. All we have to do is work hard enough and we succeed. And this is an extraordinarily destructive story. To say it again, our stories about finance that we started off with, th those are telling, those are core stories in the culture. And we have to find the ways in which we all participate in it or benefit from this story. The whole capitalist orientation has proven highly destructive to ecologies, to cultures who have gotten trampled by its fevered insanity. You know, it's, it's a kind of Frankenstein's monster created by people who want control over life and death even. And we can also maybe see something in the way our stories look, the way the characters look. And I mean sort of 
their structural relation, not the way they appear on the surface. Because, you know, we could consider Cornell West's critique of Barack Obama and his critique of Kamala Harris. Cornell West was making a critique about people who have made it to high places and who have apparently succeeded in this culture. And what Cornell West is saying is that it doesn't matter what face we put on to the neoliberal system, what face we put on to the pattern of insanity. If the structural relations stay the same, then the story is the same. We've made it seem different by talking about things like hope and change or whatever it might be, but that shows how concepts like hope and change and so on just get co-opted into the culture's larger story. So if our stories are not honest about what the system really is at its base and what is really happening, that apparent success is not necessarily based on wisdom, love, beauty, justice, sacredness, then we're not telling the truth to ourselves. We can put a woman into the system, we can put a person of color into the system, a person who loves trees and nature and claims to want to help the world. But if we plug them into this system, they are typically beholden to that system in countless ways and often don't even see how their thinking is already co-opted by that system. That the thinking is not inside our skulls, but that it always occurs in a larger ecology. We are perpetuating this disaster, this catastrophe, and we participate thereby in racial injustice, economic injustice, ecological injustice. These issues are so big, they need many contemplations, and we're just opening up a whole network of interrelations. And that's how it is with love wisdom. Every thread connects to everything in the cosmos. The first principle of love wisdom, in a certain sense, is the interwovenness of things. The interwovenness not only of wisdom, love, and beauty, but the interwovenness of all, all beings. And the stories that we tell don't seem to reveal that interwovenness in skillful and empowering ways. Because another thing those stories are not honest about is how our wealth and success typically come at the expense of somebody else's suffering. We don't get to have things, the things that we have in this culture, without other people in other places and also others within the nation, within the culture. But some other people don't get to have them. Some other people have to suffer precisely so a relative few get to have relative abundance in a narrow material sense. That's how things arise. That's what interwovenness teaches us in this context. And so we have to see that interwovenness. That's all part of unleashing the fullest positive potential of stories. Stay with me. I know this might seem a little meandering. We're trying to touch how stories don't exist in isolation. A story depends on its context, and it's, it depends on the interwovenness of life as we find it. A story depends not just on what is told, but on why and how. Now, the why has to do with our intentions as storytellers, as listeners who co-create the meaning of the story and the world. Do we tell our story to sell something? Do we tell our story to feel better, 
to commiserate, to shore up our identity, to cover over our delusions, our ignorance, our errors? Do we tell our stories to practice self-deception or to help someone else practice self-deception? We have to look pretty carefully at our intentions and our style of thinking because a lot of it's unconscious. Our style of thinking and our intentions are part of our whole feel for the cosmos as we tell or listen to stories. Do our stories, the ones we tell or listen to, come from a profound intimacy with the cosmos and with the nature of our own mind, the nature of nature, the truth and truthfulness of our soul, or do they come from something else? Is there another energy of intention there which might be from the pattern of insanity? It might be from the marketplace. It might be from the capitalist ideology. Now, how we tell a story doesn't have to do with the physical gestures we make as we tell it in person or the linguistic gestures we make on the page. Spiritually speaking, when we talk about how a story gets told, it's not the words and ideas per se. How we tell the story has to do first with our quality of being, the nature of the heart, the mind, the body, the world, and the cosmos we use to tell the story. How would we tell a story with such tenderness, tenderness that goes beyond being precious or indulgent, but a tenderness that begins to soften us to soften us out of our habits, out of our delusions about everything we think we know. How do we tell a story with the kind of raw tenderness that opens us to the nature of mind, the nature of reality, and the purpose and meaningfulness of our lives? Now, we might speak of a story coming from a storyteller's mind. But a more philosophical and spiritual approach allows us to sense that a person could tell a story so that we who receive it share the same mind. We can tell and listen to a story so as to enter the same mind together, which is not a personal mind, but a mind of mutual liberation, a mind of interwovenness, a mind of magic and mystery, a mind of wisdom, love, and beauty. Our stories could thus make the world in more skillful and graceful ways. We need stories like that. Stories about the mind of nature and the nature of mind. Stories about our landscapes. Stories that tell us about where we live stories that connect us intimately with the community of life, the whole community of life. The stories of the dominant culture encourage us to invent and disrupt rather than to revere and attune. The stories of the dominant culture tell us about visionary innovators and captains of progress. Stories in a healthy culture encourage us to touch the visionary dimension of the soul itself, which seeks spiritual rather than material progress, and rightly finds a good bit of the material progress of our world questionable at best. 
what we call an innovator is often a person who participates in the degradation of ecologies. A person who facilitates the denuding of the human soul and the soul of the world who gets celebrated not only by themselves, but by the larger culture as a hero of development and progress. And so all the terms get twisted. Development in practice means degradation. Visionary in practice means narrow and derivative. And of course we have terms like individualism, responsibility, effort, deserving, justice, objectivity, and earning, as in earning certain privileges. All those terms get twisted in their meanings. And those concepts, those terms, inform the way we tell and listen to all our stories. And if we're realistic, we can sense that those terms need careful reflection so that we can see their practical meaning in this culture, how they actually function in our lives and not the idealistic meanings we want to project on them. For instance, the term progress means something strange. It means a questionable movement, a kind of inebriated stumble into greater uncertainty and precariousness for the vast majority of people. The people of Hiroshima or the Bikini Atoll hardly think of the dawn of the nuclear age as beneficial progress. Nor do the indigenous people in the vast areas of the United States where radioactive metals were dug up and where cancer rates are significantly higher than in the white population. One estimate suggests that 60 to 80 percent of all U.S. uranium extraction happened on indigenous lands, tribal lands, that in many, if not all cases, would have been subject to treaties that the extractors defied. Globally, Perhaps 75% of all uranium extraction has happened on indigenous lands. The lands of people whose cultural stories teach them that the earth should not be treated the way the extraction process treats it. The mythopoetic stories and wisdom teachings of many indigenous people would see the whole process of extracting metals and then exploding bombs even as a supposedly scientific test, let alone to drop them on not one city, but two. Those indigenous cultures would see all of that as unethical and possibly insane. As we noted in the last contemplation, most of the stories we tell ourselves are inaccurate in part because life is wild and shifting. And then on top of that, we have all the mechanisms of rationalization and ideology that participate in telling those stories. Now, ideology is a fancy word. It's, it's just a form of spiritual materialism, which also might sound fancy, but it's not. Spiritual materialism simply means that we can take any idea, any religion, any politics, any beautiful-sounding ideal at all, and we can turn it into something that creates suffering, bondage, and oppression. Ideology, one way to look at that word, is that it's spiritual materialism on a societal scale, and it's often deliberate. In other words, an uncomfortable number of the stories we tell in the dominant culture reflect, amplify, and perpetuate the ideologies of the dominant culture, and that makes the stories false, well, in a sort of evil way. You know, the falsity differs from the ways we might say mythologies are not quite true in a conventional sense, 
Mythologies are not simply true or false in an ordinary sense. They don't unfold in the same way. They don't have the same intention. They don't have the same character as most of the stories that we tell in our culture. They differ so completely that we could get very confused. We could put it like this, mythological, spiritual, or philosophical stories, the stories of a vitalizing culture or tradition, those stories attune us with the mysteries of life. They have to do with the structure of reality, how we relate to the sacred powers and inconceivable causes that live themselves in, through, and as us. Skillful stories help attune us with reality. They help us attune with sacredness and realize our highest ideals and fullest purpose and potential. They have to do with the essential meaningfulness of life and with revealing the structures of love and liberation, insight and inspiration that we can participate in directly. And that means that those stories uncover structures of bondage and oppression inside us and outside of us. The stories of a more degraded culture have to do with attuning us to ideologies rather than attuning us to reality. And that means they have to do with covering over the fuller structures of love and liberation. And also covering over structures of bondage and oppression that function in the culture and its citizens. Now that bears on a lot in the self-help catastrophe. Because putting us in touch with wisdom, love, and beauty directly challenges some of the materialistic orientations that we get from our politicians, psychologists, self-help gurus, personal coaches, and so on. I mean, how many of the stories we hear, especially in the world of business, self-help, and mass media, how many of those stories attune us with the need and the path to healing souls and healing ecologies. Not just healing our neuroses or our physical ailments, as important as that is, but healing the ecologies we all depend on, as well as engaging in spiritual realization. How many of the stories of business, self-help, and mass media attune us with the need and the path to creating peace and equality? realizing true wisdom and cultivating true democracy and justice. We urgently need democracy in the U.S., but many of our stories are not helping. Do the stories we hear in the marketplace of ideas, including mass media, do those stories attune us with reality or do they attune us with the capitalist economic ideology? perhaps under the guise of spiritual free thinking, spiritual liberation. When the self-help guru or the supposedly visionary business leader tells us their story, do we get any clarity on institutionalized oppression? Do we get any clarity on our disconnection from real ecologies, our disconnection from the community of life we all depend on? Do we have any clarity about how our supposed wealth might come from the suffering of that larger human and non-human community of life? Do our stories put us in touch with the places we live? Do our stories put us in touch with wisdom and sacredness? 
Do they put us in touch with the real history of suffering and conquest that we need to face? Do they give us the skills to face that suffering? Do they tell us the truth about the suffering of people right now, like the stories of missing and murdered indigenous women, or the important truths about the prison system? I mean, do we get those stories? And do we get taught how to handle them, how to handle what happens to indigenous people, to black people, to people of color, to other marginalized groups? Now, granted, many stories do try to put us in touch with ourselves and our world. And many people have very good intentions with their stories of hope and change. But even good intentions can get co-opted into the overall narratives of the culture. Now, again, in part, I have in mind here the self-help catastrophe, in which our supposed freedom to do what we want, and even our health and healing, come at the expense of ecology come on the basis of human privilege, and often white privilege and male privilege. The self-help catastrophe goes together with the way the dominant culture relates to money and the way it relates to reality. It might seem an unfair caricature, but we could reasonably reduce a lot of the storytelling in the dominant culture to stories about money, about how to make it and how to spend it. The dominant culture seems to deny that we don't actually live on money, that money is not a basic need, that no spiritual tradition teaches us to value money, and that money will not solve any deep spiritual or psychological problem. Now, we live in dependence on healthy ecologies and good relations with ourselves, with other human beings, and with the larger community of life. We live on the basis of spiritual values and spiritual powers and presences spiritual places even, not on the basis of what most of the stories our culture tries to sell us. As far as the self-help catastrophe goes, money plays an incredibly significant role, and it's offered as a way to solve our problems, with good reason. You know, a lot of self-help gurus out there sell programs and services to help people get rich. That's their headline, their main premise. They often make no attempt to disguise it. And especially in this context now, they're offering somehow a way for people to make money at home. They tell a good story about getting rich. And if they want to make the story even more appealing, then their ideology will connect money with our highest values and our need for a meaningful life promising that once we sign up for their program and we start making multiple six and seven figure earnings, even eight figure earnings people are offering out there, then we'll have more freedom, more peace, more time for family, more money to give to our favorite charities. Plus, we'll be doing the work we were always meant to do, which must mean that we were meant for this fundamentally incoherent economic system the very one that has created astonishing levels of inequality and ecological breakdown. You see where it's, it's not fitting. There's an incoherence there. The overall system appears to be incoherence. If we do what we're always meant to do, somehow we're going to fit into that system that we know is good at degrading ecologies and grading inequality. Now, this premise makes no good philosophical sense, but the gurus sound convincing. And they often sell these programs at prices a lot of people simply cannot afford. It's as if you've got to walk in with some degree of white privilege, or human privilege, or both. Maybe male privilege too. And they promise to help us do the same, 
thing, you know, that we too will be able to sell products and services for high prices or maybe sell at a lower price to millions of people. Now, the high-end gurus in particular are pretty interesting, and a lot of them happen to be white. Seems a huge number of them are men. One of those coaches tells stories about how people pay $100,000 for a single day of working with him. And group events might cost sixty dollars to $80,000. And we're talking one-off events, not five or 10 years worth of help, which is what eighty grand could get us with a very expensive therapist. Another famous coach packs large venues with people paying $5,000 a head. And it's a festival of stories as well as techniques the coach uses to hack those stories. It's a story hacking thing. In today's market, a genuinely talented coach charges upwards of $1,000 an hour. That's just market rate. It has nothing to do with whether the coach has any wisdom to offer. Wisdom. Or whether anything they do will help us make the world a healthier, more peaceful, more just place to live. There's no work on healing ecologies or healing injustice necessarily. That's not integral to the process. And that market rate is simply unaffordable for most people on the planet. And even here in the dominant culture, there are people who will never have access to these supposedly life-changing teachings. But just imagine if thousands of people ponied up the money for these kinds of trainings and it worked so that they can now make tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. Where does that money come from? What connection does it have to real things? How will their lifestyle support the community of life they depend on? There's a smoke and mirrors show going on here. We seem to have no sense of how the human privilege to use money to get whatever we want actually degrades our world and how this in turn goes together with male privilege and white privilege in ways that keep the larger community of life not only in chains but in grave danger. Now, that's not an aside. I know I'm picking on the self-help catastrophe a little bit, but that's not the main issue. It's about the stories that culture depends on, that subculture. It seems essential to realize that the stories in our culture need to deceive us in order to perpetuate the culture itself. Because if they didn't deceive us, if they told the truth, if we saw how much the successful entrepreneur suffered in their life because of their pursuit of wealth, if we saw how the pursuit of wealth and how even the achievement of wealth, let alone the pursuit, doesn't erase our basic existential suffering and might even increase it. If we saw how many lucky breaks people get or how much inherited wealth makes a difference, if we could really see the way so-called innovations directly degrade ecologies and fragment the society, if we could see how wealth in this dominant culture harms other people and harms the conditions of life, if we could see if the stories revealed truthfully the ways that male privilege, white privilege, and human privilege give people an advantage to achieve their supposed success, if we could see any of that, 
we would have a very different relationship to those stories. We would have a different relationship to the culture, to ourselves, to each other, and to the community of life. We find a big contrast here. In mythologies, we find an honesty, a profundity, and a spiritual truth. The wisdom traditions and the stories and teachings that go with them offer us a user's manual for the cosmos, a cosmic user's manual for our own mind, our heart, our body, and our world. And on the other hand, there's an essential kind of deception, rationalization, ideology, and delusion in many of the other stories of our culture. And that leads to all sorts of problems for us, for other beings, and for the whole world. Now these other stories and storytellers may even claim to offer us a user's manual. They'll often do this. But it's always limited and limiting, fragmented and fragmenting. We might learn how to use Facebook advertising, or we might learn how to use stories to brand ourselves. We might get some sort of hacker's manual for our mindset or our intentions or something like that. But it's all narrow user's manuals, They're not this cosmic level thing for using a cosmos. But how to use something narrow. And these user's manuals keep the dominant culture intact even though that culture doesn't accord with reality. These ideological stories have a lot of presence right now. They're everywhere. And if we think we can just step in and tell a better story about ourselves without recognizing the way the structure of those stories already gets set by the culture, gets set by these problematic concepts and narratives and so on, gets set by a whole style of consciousness, a pattern of thinking, pattern of insanity. If we think we can just start telling better stories without addressing all that, we've made a huge mistake. We need wisdom, love, and beauty to cut through all this delusion. That includes a practice of compassion, again, because among other things, we need to hear the stories of the suffering of this world, the suffering of indigenous, black, and other marginalized people, as well as the suffering of non-human beings in the larger community of life. Together with that, we need more stories about our ancestors, about our lineage, true stories about our lineage, about where we came from and how. Stories about the karma we inherited from our ancestors and how we can heal it. Not deny it, not say somebody else did that, but how do we heal this open wound that's here? And we also need to learn about the gifts that they bequeathed us or could have bequeathed us that we might still recover. How we can best offer the most noble aspects of our lineage for the benefit of all beings. We need stories about our old ceremonies, our old teachings of wisdom, love, and beauty, our ancient rites and rituals, so that we can recover the meaningfulness of life again. It's right here. We don't have to go inventing it. 
We need more stories from the perspective of ecologies. From the perspective of ecologies. That's a, a, an interesting thing to get our minds and our hearts around. We need stories from the perspective of indigenous people and the whole community of life. Stories of the mythopoetic dimension that will help us all to become indigenous again. Help us to relate with our non-human family. Relate in a good way, a noble way, a respectful way. Stories that will help us attune to the sacredness of this world and our cosmos. We need a practice for receiving stories, not just a practice for telling stories. That would be our ordinary way of thinking of it. A practice for receiving stories, not just receiving them from each other, but receiving stories from landscapes, from ecologies, from ancestors, long gone even receiving stories from non-human beings, from archetypal energies, from the sacred powers and inconceivable causes that sustain the whole of our lives and the whole community of life here in this world. We need skillful practices for working with our stories in such a way that they help attune us to reality and open up to the soul's calling open up to the full spectrum of experience and realize our true nature and purpose. If we sit quietly together, gather around campfires and dinner tables with a silence and stillness in our hearts, the stories we need will come. As long as we practice keeping free, and being together wisely, compassionately, gracefully, in a flow of meaningfulness we already share with all beings. We have to receive our stories from ecologies of mind that transcend our egos and our agendas. We have to listen, not telling the stories to each other, but receiving them letting them speak themselves through us, discovering and creating them with the help of all beings and with the magic of the sacred powers and inconceivable causes that give rise to all good things. Well, what do you think? I think I asked some uh, questions at, at the end of the last contemplation that might be still valuable. I mean, why are we so fascinated with stories right now? And can you sense a way that the power of story is being co-opted? How many self-help programs or uh, politicians or psychologists have asked you to get over your limiting stories, but whatever help they may have offered, how many of them failed to put you into truly empowering contact with your own nature, with ecological realities that sustain us all, with the place, the landscape where you live, with your lineage, whether living or gone. What stories have helped you in any way or healed you in some way? And are, are there any of them that you can see as more problematic than you first thought them to be? Maybe because you were so excited at how they helped you. Well, send in your thoughts, questions, reflections. You can send them in through wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we'll consider some of them in a future contemplation. 
Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.